I got a question for you. What? Have you ever been so bold talking to someone about Jesus that it got you in trouble? Have you ever been so daring telling somebody about what you believe and why that, that they mocked you or made fun of you or told stories about you? Have you ever, have you ever been so bold that it didn't matter who heard or who else was at the table next to you or, or what even what the person believed that you just couldn't help yourself but tell them about who Jesus was to you? And if your answer is no, my question is why not? What, what, what are you waiting for? That, that's what we're getting at the story today is Peter, Peter has just preached two incredible sermons. And they are just absolutely all about Jesus, the risen Jesus. And people are responding and it, it's so much fun to read and imagine what it would have been, to like, been like back then. But the fact of the matter is today Peter gets in trouble. And if you've never gotten in trouble, if no one's ever made fun of you, if they've never mocked you, I'd like you to think about why. But what are you afraid of? And, and don't say, well, I'm not you. I can't do what you do, Pastor Steve. I'm not talking about this. I'm talking about the really hard stuff. I'm talking about when you sit down with a friend of yours who you know doesn't believe in Jesus and share with them why you do. I'm talking about the really hard stuff where you, you've got someone who you work with, who you care about, but you know that they don't go to church. They don't have any interest. And you put it all on the line and you share with them why you do go to church. I'm talking about the really hard stuff where a family member who makes fun of you or maybe doesn't want to go to the things that you go to because they know they, ah, you're a churchgoer. Well, have you ever explained to them why? That's the stuff that I'm talking about. Peter can't help himself. John can't help himself but to do that. But it's hard when you don't take into consideration the consequence. See, there, there's warning signs, and we've got all this traffic stuff up here. And Peter's been giving people warning signs about, about what the world really is and who Jesus is, and, and they've got the opportunity to listen to them or not. And today we're going to run into more warning signs. That, that's more of what we're going to see, but... But Peter, Peter ignores when people give him warning signs and tell him to stop. And we're going to read about that in a little bit because Peter can't help himself. But I wonder about you and I. We, we don't necessarily do that because it's, it's awful easy to get shut down when people tell us they're not interested or they don't agree or they think that we're crazy. Peter can't do that, and we've got something to learn from him. If you've got your Acts journal, we're on page 22 of that thing. Uh, we're starting in chapter 4, verse 1. If you're a note-taker, I want you to write down this word, okay? I want you to write down the word cornerstone. Cornerstone is the key word in this passage today. I almost missed it. But it's right there, and it, and it absolutely it covers everything that we need to understand that Peter's been talking about. So write down the word cornerstone, and we'll get there in a little bit. Acts chapter 4, verse 1. Jesus is alive, and Peter can't help but tell people about it. It says, And as they were speaking to the people, this is Peter and John, but Peter's doing most of the preaching, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them. They were greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. 
Let's go through that list a little bit and talk about who's there. The priests. Those would be the Levitical priests. All of the men in the tribe of Levi, all of them in the ancestral line were responsible for being the priests in the temple. There was a lot of them. The second one was the captain of the temple guard. He was the chief priest, right-hand man. This particular temple guard had a reputation for being brutal. He was not a kind man, and he didn't care if you knew it. And the third group is the Sadducees. It's a whole big bunch of people. They are the leading group. They're the leading council. They're the head of the Sanhedrin. As a rule, they were rich, they were liberal, and they were ruthless. They were religious. They weren't worried about relationship. And the thing is, when when this group of people gets together and they come after you, there's probably trouble that's going to follow. It's not a good sign that all these guys get together and they approach them. And they're greatly annoyed, the Bible says, because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. Why would they be so upset about that? Well, very simple. The Sadducees had everything that they believed in based on the simple premise that there is no life after this one. There's no eternal life. There's no afterlife. There's no resurrection from the dead. There's none of that. That's why they were Sadducees. Get it? That's the old church joke. Thank you. Come on. You'll never forget the difference between a Sadducee and a Pharisee. Now, Sadducees were sad because they didn't believe there was a resurrection from the dead. I had to go there. They're upset because Peter is preaching that not only did Jesus die and was raised from the grave, but he's the one that's responsible for doing this miracle. Everything that they have built, all of the religious structure that they've created is based On their teaching that there is no life after this one. This is all you get. You get one chance and you're done. And so you had better, you had better do your job and pay attention at the temple. You had better listen and do everything that you're told to do. That's everything they had was based on that. Of course they were annoyed. They were annoyed because they had something to lose. They thought they'd taken care of the Jesus problem. And now Peter's saying, not only is he alive, not only is he risen, but he's back at work. So they're greatly annoyed because they're proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. Verse 3. And so they arrested them and they put them in custody until the next day for it was already evening. That's an important note. Not because there was a rule that said you couldn't do anything at night. Because when Jesus was arrested, he was imprisoned in his trials. You remember that at night went through the night? Because they wanted to hurry up and see that he was dead before it hit the festival time. Right? They wanted that done before Passover. In this case, it's really just because they're lazy. They're thinking they're going to throw Peter and John in jail. They're going to walk away from them. These guys are going to realize they're serious. They're going to apologize. And then they're going to go back to life as normal. Sadducees get their temple and everything's happy. But that's not what ends up happening. They arrested him, put him in jail and custody until the next day, for it was already evening. Verse 4. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. Yes, you read that right. Peter and John follow the lame man who's just been healed into the temple. Remember when he was healed, he jumped up on these legs and ankles and feet that had never walked before. Not only does he stand, he jumps, he runs inside the temple. It says he's praising God. The response is that people follow. They knew who this guy was. They wanted to know what had happened. Something beyond explanation had just occurred. And this is where Peter gathers his audience. And so he tells them not about Peter and John. He tells them about Jesus. And he preaches the good news of Jesus, that it's the power of the risen Jesus that's made this man well. And at the end of the message, what happens? They ask the same question they did the first time after Pentecost. Well, what do we do? And he says, repent and be baptized. 
repent and believe. What happens? 5,000 men accept Jesus as their Savior. That doesn't count the women who might have been in the outer courts. 5,000 men all at once. That the church just grew from 120 to 8,000 in two sermons. That's some powerful preaching. 5,000 people. But the religious leaders are unmoved. Because they, they've got something to lose. And Jesus is the one who they feel is going to take it from them. Verse 5, on the next day, 5,000 people have just been saved at least. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem. With Annas, the high priest, and Caiaphas, he's the one who was around in Jesus' trials, and John and Alexander, and all are of the high priestly family. Why does Luke go through and name all of them? I think what Luke is trying to do is paint the picture that Peter and John were facing a very angry crowd of powerful people. They were rich, they were liberal, they were rooted in their own version of religion, and they weren't about to move. And Luke is making sure we understand exactly how many people this is. And when they had set them in their midst, they inquired. So just imagine this, this whole group of people sitting in a big circle, and they put Peter and John in the middle. If that isn't meant to intimidate them, I don't know what it is. Because Peter and John had been faithful Jewish men. They were in the temple for crying out loud. They were there because it was their custom and tradition, and they respected these people at the very least. They asked them the question. When they had set them in the midst, they inquired, By what power or by what name did you do this? They're asking about healing the lame man. How did you pull it off? What was the trick? How, how did you make it look like he's healed now? By what power or name did you do this? They're, they're hoping that there's a simple answer, that there's something that they can just brush off and they can pass out to everyone and, and explain it away and say, no big deal, he was already feeling better. By what name or power did you do this? And then this part is so important. Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, filled with the Holy Spirit, I think part of the reason that we don't always tell people about Jesus is because we go out into the world on our own power. We go out trying to figure out how we're going to get through the day and maybe even how we're going to do some good on our own with our best intentions and, and our hard work. But Peter knows the only way that he's going to say anything that matters at all is if it's filled with the Holy Spirit. I've learned the lesson the hard way. If you're going to talk to somebody about Jesus, you know, it really helps to pray ahead of time, that God gives you the words to say, because you'll never prepare yourself for the person that you're going to meet. But if you've always got that prayer, and you always say, Holy Spirit, just make me ready and present me with opportunities, then what can happen to you is what happened here with Peter. Through the power of the Holy Spirit, Peter spoke. And he said to them, rulers of the people and elders... If we're being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, he turns it around him on him immediately and he says, if you've got us here because we did something nice for a crippled man that you've, already, you've always ignored, that's what he's starting with. By what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. And this is where Peter brings out the sledgehammer, whom you crucified. Who were the ones that wanted Jesus' death? The Sadducees, the church leaders by whom God raised from the dead. They thought they had the final word, but he says, oh no, God wasn't done. By him, this man is standing before you well. Everything that the Sadducees had built 
their entire religious structure on, Peter just addressed and overturned. You want to talk about a beautiful synopsis to the gospel, that's it. Jesus Christ, whom you crucified, God has raised from the dead. The idea that there's no afterlife, they've all seen Jesus. They all knew that he had been raised from the grave. There was no way they could deny it. And they knew that this man who had been lame was now healed. Everything they stood for, Peter just addressed and said, now he's standing before you well because of Jesus. Verse 11, this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you. You talk about a heavy-hitting sermon. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. That doesn't make as much sense to us as it would have to them. But remember now that they're sitting on the top of Temple Mount, and it is a huge stone structure. It's not made out of concrete and boards. It's made out of rocks. And throughout history, the rocks have gotten knocked down. The walls have been turned over. But there's something that's still there that has, has been there and is always a part of any major construction. It's called the cornerstone. Any big cathedral you've ever seen has a cornerstone. Any big stone structure has a cornerstone. The temple in Jerusalem had a cornerstone, and it had a very specific job. The cornerstone's job was to set everything else in the construction right. The cornerstone was carefully picked. It was carefully placed. It was level. It was stable. It was sturdy. It was strong. It was true. What he's saying to them, the ones who are responsible, he's saying that stone was rejected by you, the builders, who are the ones who are responsible for growing people's faith. It has become the cornerstone. The very Jesus that you crucified, that you rejected, that you wrote off, that you had no time for, has become the cornerstone of faith. And they understood that in a way that even goes deeper than what we're able to understand. And then he goes on and he says, and there is salvation in no one else. They didn't believe in salvation. And he's saying it isn't just an idea, but it's true. There's salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men which we must be saved. He just completely demolished Every other religion and, and spiritual belief out there, there's no other name under heaven other than Jesus. The one whom you rejected, the one whom you crucified, who God raised from the grave, he has made him the cornerstone. So here's my first question for you today. If a temple or a cathedral that is built out of stone needs a cornerstone that's level and solid and even and true, and everything that follows is built on that, because if that cornerstone isn't true, if it isn't level, everything else is going to become in trouble later. Nothing else is going to fit the way that it's supposed to. If that's true of the temple, then it's true of you and I. That's why it's in the Bible. What is the cornerstone that you've built your life on? What is that thing that you trust not to shake when everything else around you feels like it's crumbling? What is the thing that you have put your faith and hope and trust and life on that you expect when everything else falls apart, that's going to be there for you? For some of you, it's money. You've got a lot of it stored away. You've got it set aside and you know no matter what happens, even your health, you're going to be okay because you've got money. What happens if the world markets change or something else in the world crumbles and suddenly your money is worth nothing? What do you have? What if it's health, you take good care of yourself, you exercise, you eat well, you, you make sure you don't put anything into your body that's going to destroy you, and finally you get that news, the C word. What if you've built 
your life on the cornerstone of your own good health or your own good intentions or your own hard work? What happens when the news comes that your health isn't there or that someone close to you is sick or is dying or that you've lost all the money in your account or your house burns down or your favorite car gets crashed into, whatever it is that you've built your life on? If it isn't the cornerstone that's Jesus, it isn't going to last. And whatever you've chosen, and every one of us has chosen something, whatever you've chosen, if it isn't Jesus, when the rest of the things around you start to crumble, that's going to go with it. Because that thing is really little more than an illusion that you chose to build your life on. And what Peter is telling them is that the Sadducees, the the chief priests, the leaders in the church, they rejected the cornerstone, and this is their warning. All these warning signs around us, this is their warning. You rejected him, and you better listen to what I'm saying. And so what I'm saying to you is, what is the cornerstone that you've built your life on? Is it straight? Is it level? Is it true? Is it trustworthy? Is it Jesus? Because if it's not, you're in trouble. The life that you're building, the house that you're building of your life, it's going to shake. It's going to crumble and it's going to fall. And if it isn't Jesus that you've built it on, you're in trouble. Verse 13, now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, that Peter would say these things in the midst of all of these people who they knew, because part of the message they wanted them to get was, we had Jesus killed and we can do the same with you. They didn't say that, but that's the underlying message. And putting him in the middle of all of these folks says, every one of us is standing against you. When they saw the boldness of Peter and John, and they perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished. How would they perceive that? Because Peter would have used very simple language. He wouldn't have used graduate school language. He wouldn't have used college degree language. He probably didn't use high school diploma language. He talked like you and I. And they perceived they were common, ordinary men. There was nothing as special or extraordinary about them. They were astonished that Peter dared to speak like this. And then it says, and then they recognized they had been with Jesus. And they tied together the cornerstone to Jesus, the one whom they had crucified. That these men already were building their lives on Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. I have to wonder if this isn't the first example in history of fake news. I think what they were doing was trying to come up with some sort of a plan to write off the healed man and to confront Peter and John and stop them in their tracks. And they realized there was nothing they could say. That They couldn't use their own theology to stop them. They couldn't provide a different argument. They couldn't say that the, that the healed man wasn't healed because everybody had seen it. So they were astonished and had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another. So they're giving them a warning sign. They're saying, we are going to start warning you now and we want you to leave. You've got to leave the room because we're going to talk about you. Part of the reason that we don't always talk about Jesus is because we're afraid people are going to talk about us. And what are they going to say? You know what? I've come to the place in my life where I don't care anymore. I really don't. The only thing worthwhile that I've got to say is something about Jesus. And Peter had said his piece. And now he sent him out of the room and they're conferring. They're trying to figure out what they can do. They're using all of their brilliant minds to come up with a plan that they can use their power and their position and their wealth and their place to do something to these guys. 
So they conferred with one another, saying, what shall we do with these men? It's interesting to me that they do the same thing that happened after the first two sermons of Peter. Remember what happened? Peter preaches these great messages, and people are cut to the heart. And their response is, what do we do now? Both times, what do we do now? And Peter's response is, repent and believe. If this message to those leaders wasn't an opportunity for them to repent and believe, you know what, we did that, and we're sorry. God, please forgive us. But that's not what they do. They ask a question, and they say, what do we do with these men? They don't ask what they should do with themselves. See, the broken thing is them. The broken thing is not Peter and John. The other people understood that I've got to do something about me. These pompous, arrogant religious leaders decide, what are they going to do about them? What shall we do with the men? For a notable sign has been performed through them that is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. We cannot deny it. That was the part where they thought, maybe we can just claim the lame man wasn't really healed. Maybe he was feeling better. Maybe he'd been seeing a doctor. Something else happened. And they're realizing that everybody's seen it. They can't do it. They cannot deny it. We cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them, let us caution them to speak no more to anyone in this name. They won't even say the name of Jesus. So what their plan is, we're going to send them out there because there's nothing else we can do, but we're going to warn them in really strong language. Don't talk about that guy anymore. Let's see how that goes. So they called them and they charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. You decide if the right thing is to listen to what you have to say or whether we should listen to what God says. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. What about you? Have you allowed yourself to get close enough to Jesus that you cannot help but to speak about the things that you've seen and heard? Maybe there's a words to a song that just, they just eat at your brain. Do you, do, you, do you go out and tell people, you know what, you're not going to believe what we sang in church on Sunday. Or you're not going to believe what we read in the Bible. I've never seen it before. There it was. Can you not speak about the things that you've seen and heard about Jesus? And if your answer is, nope, I'm fine, I don't have to talk about it, then my question is, why have you not allowed yourself to get closer to him? Because you don't have to get that close, and suddenly you can't help but to tell people about him. Because you want to talk about awesome, amazing, incredible, supernatural, almost inexplicable, that's who Jesus is, and that's what Peter has realized. Verse 21, And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no other way to punish them because of the people, for they were all praising God for what had happened. Their own congregation members were the reason that they let Peter and John go. Remember it said earlier on, Acts two forty two forty seven. we read that part, and it talked about, and they had enjoyed favor among all the people. All of the people that had gone to the temple to hear about what we understand as the Old Testament this day heard about Jesus. And all that they could do was to praise God for what they had seen and heard. And they said, we've got to let these guys go because there's nothing we can do. For the man on whom the sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. Even these hard-hearted religious people couldn't come up with another explanation for what they had seen. 
so often we see something that Jesus does, whether it's in our life or someone close to us or someone we know, and we write it off as coincidence so we don't have to talk about it. Somehow some of us feel better about coincidence than a God incidence or a miracle. But if your eyes are open and you're allowing yourself to get close to Jesus, you are going to see and hear and experience things that you can't help but to talk about. You can't help but to praise God about. But if your cornerstone is something other than Jesus, you're always going to go back to that as the source of whatever goodness is in your life. Jesus can do a mighty miracle, but if you've got enough money socked away that you're comfortable, you're going to figure somehow or another that played into it, and it really wasn't God at all. If Jesus isn't the cornerstone of your life, Jesus is never going to be the one that you give credit the good things that happened to you. But when Jesus is the cornerstone, when Jesus is what you build your life on, you're going to realize that everything you have and everything that happens to you comes from him. Jesus is our cornerstone. For us in the church, those of us who know that God's word is true, Jesus is the cornerstone. He is the foundation of our life. He is the author and the perfecter of our faith. If your life isn't built on Jesus, your life isn't built on much. If you've chosen a cornerstone that goes by any other name other than Jesus, it is a God, small g to you. It is an idol. It is something that will fail you and let you down. That's why Paul talks about, or Peter talks about them rejecting the cornerstone. Nothing else in your life outside of Jesus will ever be fully true if he isn't the cornerstone. If he isn't the foundation of your very existence, it isn't going to take much for you to shake and to rattle and to begin to fall apart. The death of someone close to you. Diagnosis of an illness that maybe terrified you your whole life. Suddenly you find yourself in addiction that you can't get out of, caught up in sin that you can't escape. Suddenly the money that came in so easily dries up, but it isn't there anymore. If any of those things are the foundation, the cornerstone of your life, Everything about you is going to begin to crumble. And yet, when Jesus is the cornerstone of our life, even those things don't seem so bad. Because we know that we have hope in this life and we have hope for the next. The cornerstone that is level and straight and true carries us through even our darkest days. Jesus alone, the Bible says, is our cornerstone. He is the one. He is our everything and he's all we need. And so here's what I want to ask you. What or who have you built your life on? If you're really honest with yourself, you don't even have to talk to anybody else about it. What is the truth of the cornerstone that you have built your life on? Is it a thing? Is it a person? Is it a job? Is it a dream? Is it money? What is the thing, what is the cornerstone that you've built your life on? And if it isn't Jesus, why? What more does God need to show you, to do for you, or to help you understand, to know that we're here to recognize, to know, to love, and to accept Jesus as our Savior and to live for Him? He is the cornerstone. He is the one truth in our life that never changes, that will never go away, and that will never fail you. If Jesus isn't the cornerstone of your life, I pray, I pray that you will think about why. I pray that you will consider why it is that you've rejected him. Because God sent him to die for your sins that you might believe in him and make him the cornerstone of your life. Let's pray. God, thank you for this passage in Acts. Thank you for the whole book of Acts. Thank you for what is 
happening in these pages and what we're learning in history and how true it speaks to who we are today. God, truly, you gave us Jesus to be the cornerstone of our faith. You gave us Jesus to defeat the power that sin has over us, that death has over us. You have done everything for us in Jesus. You didn't just proclaim him the cornerstone. He went through horrible days. He died for our sins. You raised him from the grave that he might show himself to be the cornerstone. Whatever it is that we've built our life on here today, God, I pray that, I pray that everyone takes time to take care of business with you and that we speak Jesus to be the cornerstone of our life, that we accept the gift that he gives us, the free gift of salvation in his death and resurrection that we give up all the things that we think are more important than him, and we accept your son that you sent for us, and that we place him as a cornerstone, the foundation, the very base of everything that we build our life on. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so in the theme of traffic signs and warnings, here's my warning for you, right? If you have chosen to reject Jesus as the cornerstone of your life, when you get to eternity, you're going to be so sad, you see, because there really is a life after this one. And what Jesus offers us in his death and resurrection is salvation in him and resurrection to new life in heaven for all of eternity with him. And so think about that notion of what are you really building your life on? And if it isn't Jesus, why not? 